You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! While writing my fourth book, currently with the working title White Spirit Animals, Prophets of the Wild, I was told by the animals that three white animals used to share caves, the white lion, the white bear, and the white dragon. When I heard that, I went, the white dragon? Really? Well, that's what the lion told me. And you're going, Zoe, (laughs) what? So in the course of researching the myth versus reality, now listen to this, Matata, a matriarch bonobo with whom I worked through telepathy before she died, told me the story of the giants. She said before there were humans and bonobos, there were only giants. She continued, then a new breed of giant who mated with humans created another giant royalty of sorts. All of this, she said, during the Ice Age. And then at the end of the last Ice Age, Matata said, bonobo and human separated. White dragon, giants? Yes, there were giants in America, Matata was right. And our guest this hour has made a professional study of the Allegheny Mounds and the archaic and woodland period cultures of the northeastern United States and Ohio River Valley which not only proves the existence of these gigantic humanoids, 9 feet, 10 feet, some as tall as 20 feet in other parts of the world, one finds, yes, they did exist, and their skeletal remains have been found and cataloged. So why, we then should ask, does the Smithsonian historically and the status quo do their best to bury this truth? Thank you for joining us, Jason. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it is a fascinating topic, and as strange as animal telepathy seems to some, yes, it was a matriarch bonobo that told me about the giants. And then when I told my husband, he handed me a few books, and he goes, here's your little story on the giants. So how did you get interested in this topic? Well, it's very interesting. You mentioned separating myth from reality. Um, That's exactly what what we consider our mission to be is to discover the prehistoric reality behind this sort of mythology that's grown up around this topic. I personally have researched ancient religions and giants and the Nephilim my whole life because when I was a child, my mother actually taught me to read with an encyclopedia of ancient Egypt. And um, That's interesting. Right. I always wanted to get to the bottom of ancient gods and mythological beings. But as far as our current investigation, it really got underway about seven years ago. Um, I, like most people, had read a lot of the early material by people like Ross Hamilton about the North American giants and mound builders. But we found ourselves, when we moved to West Virginia, we were living on top of the ruins of one of their ancient structures, and no one else even remembered that it had been there. We found it in an old Smithsonian report. And the more that we learned, we decided to get to the bottom of the mystery. Well, that's really finding everything you need in your own backyard. <laughs> well, it literally was, yeah. <laughs> So as you discovered that not only did you have this interest, but you were drawn right to a spot that was, in fact, one of these ancient sites. So, I mean, you know, not everybody goes looking for giants, and not everybody moves to a location in which there are mounds. Talk to us a bit about the cultures and and the difference between, for instance, the Allegheny Mounds and the northeastern United States area. 
Oh, sure. The, the, the beings that people today refer to as the North American giants were actually an elite cast of individuals, and their skeletons, as they've been discovered, the people of this cast, usually range somewhere between seven and nine feet in height, and there are much more of the varieties between seven and eight or eight and a half feet tall than nine feet. And it's been fairly well established by people who came before us, like Ross Hamilton, that one particular culture with a high concentration of these people in their tombs was the Adena culture. And the Adena culture was really the first, uh, they were the first builders of earthworks and burial mounds in the Ohio River Valley in Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. And the Adena date by the conventional radiocarbon dating from about 1000 BC down to about 200 AD. However, in our research, which has been ongoing for seven years, we have found very credible reports um, in the archaeological literature itself, which attest to the fact that these individuals were also found in the tombs of cultures which preceded the Adena, and that's very important because it increases their longevity by another 1,000 years. So between the late archaic cultures and the Adena culture, we have a period of over 2,000 years in which these individuals seem to have held some type of elite status in North America. And, you know, I've read a, a number of different reports about the findings, and some have skeletal remains of being sitting upright with, you know, arrows in their heads and two sets of teeth and red hair, and others there isn't a skeletal remain of a group of people, but only several all dressed in ornamental, you know, regalia of some sort. Talk to us about the various uses of the mounds themselves and the construction around the mounds. Well, the the burial mounds of the, first of all, uh, you mentioned the extra set of teeth. Now, many of the reports of double rows of teeth come from press accounts and local histories written in the late 1800s, and many of those reports of large skeletons are credible. As far as the double rows of teeth, what we do know from the archaeological record is that Adena skeletons with supernumerary teeth have been found at various mounds, including the Dover Mound and the Wright Mounds in Kentucky, as well as McMurray Mound 1 and Sidner Mound 1 in Ohio. But when they are found, the supernumerary teeth are usually just between one and four extra teeth. I do not know of any instance in recent times when a full double set has been recovered, but these reports do suggest that there were individuals with extra teeth. Now, as far as the mound burials, it's a very fascinating subject because 
the Adena practiced a very diverse array of tomb construction, and a lot of it was regional. In Kentucky and Ohio, the Adena constructed wooden graves, like wooden tombs made from logs, sort of a platform shape. These were often in subsurface pits beneath the mound. Here in Charleston, West Virginia, where I live, uh, some of the most unique Adena burials ever discovered were found by the Smithsonian in 1883 and 1884. Three of the mounds here in Charleston featured complete log cabins built into the tombs with sloping roofs and central roof support logs. And these log cabins in these three mounds not only featured large central burials, but also retainer sacrifices that were interred with the elites. And according to the Smithsonian's own report for the Charleston Mounds that appears in the 12th Annual Report of the Bureau of Ethnology, the elite dead at Charleston measured between 7 and 7.6 feet in height. Well, and I was reading one of the things you posted in the map of Charleston, West Virginia, Dino Earthworks from the fifth annual report of the Bureau of American Ethnology. And it said that the mound could be as large as 75 feet wide at the base and eight feet high. So we're not talking about little tiny mounds that you'd go outside and you build in an hour by yourself with a shovel. So why why the mound? Firstly, why, you know, some cultures inter everything underground and you won't see anything above ground. So what is, what's the general hypothesis about mounding as burial versus some other form of burial? Well, this is one of those areas where a researcher like myself breaks with the mainstream or mm-hmm. the establishment. The establishment will tell you that this is largely coincidental, well, that's idiotic. I mean, I mean, right off right. the start, I'll just respond to that one with knowing nothing about any of it other than the little bit I've read, and that's an idiotic thing to say. Right. Well, the, so we'll start know, there. Oh, right. It's just coincidental, and it doesn't mean anything. I mean, that's just plain stupid. You see it everywhere. Well, that's like saying everybody who hits their finger with a hammer and it doesn't hurt one guy. Well, there's no connection. You know, it shouldn't right. hurt anybody. I love your I love your perspective. Um, one of the recent explanations <laughs> for the massive earthworks these people constructed that I saw from an archaeologist was that numerous bands of people needed to get together to do something as a group activity just to burn off energy so they didn't kill each other. Oh, so this was just play. And, this is play therapy now. Right. I, but, have you ever heard it? You know, some of the things people say, it's just like they need something to say. And it's just so totally stupid because when you look at the calculations that go into where artifacts are placed and where mounds are placed and where the connecting channels are placed, and, you know, it's obvious that it's deliberate. This is not playground. Well, the secret societies in North America in the late 1800s certainly believed it was deliberate. Um, a little-known aspect of this mystery that we've managed to unearth, so to speak, is that the Masonic Order actually had a great deal of interest regarding the mound builders in the late 1800s, and they actually wrote about them in their publications. Well, did they find, you know, I'm not expert in this area. My husband's done a good deal of interview work over the years on this, and it's been an interest of his. And 
I don't know, until Matata the Bonobo started talking to me about giants, wasn't something I'd really given a whole lot of thought to. But when you consider, can we skip back for a moment to just get your opinion of, it's really important. You know, here we're talking about extinction of very large beings, and some of them much larger than nine feet around the world. I've read some as tall as six stories have been unearthed in other parts of the world. We're talking about a whole span of history that has been obliterated from the history books, obliterated from our sense of how we have lived on earth and what has lived before us. And it's kind of like wiping out an extinction record. So how has this impacted us as a society from, from your own research and from your own sort of, you know, desire to know what's true? Well, I've, it has, it's impacted my entire perception of anthropology. Um, I, I think it was Dr. Greg Little who recently did a study that he published online, um, showing that just with the number of large skeletons found in the 5th and 12th annual reports of the Bureau of Ethnology, for those large skeletons to be a coincidence or just exceptionally tall people that occasionally happen, Smithsonian would have had to have excavated 2.5 million mounds to find that many giants. And they only excavated around 2,000. So there's no question that we're dealing with a unique physical type of human being, the skeletal features of these individuals, there's more to them than just the occasional extreme height. They had massive, wide lower jaw bones. Their cranial vaults were very high, and they practiced artificial cranial deformation. We know from the studies of people like William S. Webb and Charles Snow who excavated some of the tall ones in the 20th century in Kentucky, that their bones bore the marks of extreme muscle attachments. These were very powerfully built people, and their distinct anthropology has been forgotten because initially the Smithsonian acknowledged these discoveries in the late 1880s. Yeah, because even, I was going to say, for somebody interested, you can go online and people like our guest Jason have taken the time to upload these beautiful local stories that, you know, Farmer John's out planting his corn, he digs a hole and knock, knock, he finds a big, enormous skeleton and therein becomes this whole story of the mounds of Ohio. But So so go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it, it's extraordinarily fascinating for somebody who wants to know some more about sort of our extinction erasure, you know, what we don't even know that went extinct. Exactly. The the tall ones were originally, as, as you just mentioned, the Smithsonian reported most of the tall skeletons they found. They didn't try to conceal them from their reports. It wasn't until the early 1900s that the policy of denial was enacted, and we can actually trace this to a single anthropologist. And this is one of the most notorious names in the history of anthropology, Ailes Herdlitschka. Herdlitschka became an assistant at the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian in 1903. And in 1910, he became curator of anthropology. And from that platform, he enforced and enshrined most of his theories as academic dogmas. And it was Herlichka who enacted the policy of denial 
regarding the large skeletons. He could barely write a report and file a report without disparaging the concept that anyone over six feet tall had ever been excavated in North America. So a lot of researchers, including us, uh, feel that Herlichka was the person who really got the ball rolling on removing the existence of these individuals from history. And I personally believe that the key to understanding why lies in the fact that Ailey Herlichka was a prominent member of the American Eugenics Society. Now, the American Eugenics Society was an, an organization which sought the eradication of essentially all bloodlines in the United States that were not of Nordic or Anglo-Saxon descent. They sought the elimination of Native Americans, African Americans, Jews, Hispanics, and even Caucasians whose families had experienced more than one generation of poverty. And in order to justify their scientific racism, the American Eugenics Society employed anthropologists working for the Smithsonian and the National Association for the Advancement of Science, people like Herlichka. And these anthropologists created a type of racial hierarchy placing Native Americans very low on the ladder. So it's entirely possible that the existence of an ancient superior anthropological type in North America's prehistory was seen as something that contradicted the dogmas of the American Eugenic Society during the time period, which could have led to the suppression of the knowledge of these skeletal remains. That's fascinating. That's a that's a clean line if it's it's true. And beyond that, though, you know, you can certainly think of the distortion that the church would have wanted if that were a cofactor in some sort of, you know, imposed evolutionary story that doesn't prove out by biology at all. And then I thought the, the another thing you pointed out, we have to take a break, um, was about the Uric expansion. I want to come back to that later on. And what do we have to learn from it? Hello, this is Phyllis Galdi. I'm the editor of SpeciesLinkJournal.com, telepathic communication with animals. You can get a free e-issue. Just contact us at SpeciesLinkJournal.com. And you are listening to wonderful 21st century radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Jason Jarrell is our guest. You can learn about his beautiful work along with his wife, Sarah Farmer, about the Allegheny Mounds Giants and late archaic and woodland period cultures in northeastern United States and the Ohio River Valley. So, Jason, being the novice on this subject of giants, other than the things that interest me, has DNA um, evidence been used to see what lineages currently? Because if, if, as you're saying, the guy at the Smithsonian at the time was a eugenics freak like the Nazis were um, and looking for a way to destroy certain genetic lineages. Who's attached to these giants from a DNA perspective if that's been done? Well, there has been limited DNA studies done on Adena remains, but most of the genetic tests that are done on remains from burial mounds in the United States come from later cultures. Uh, there's extensive testing that's been done, for example, on the Hopewell remains, 
And the Hopewell were a, a people who sort of inherited and expanded the culture of the Adena. But the issue with that is the two archaeologists who did the most research on the Adena, William S. Webb and Don Jargu, both wrote that the Adena were a distinct people from the earlier and the later people who followed them. They considered them a completely different population. Now, there have been, like I said, limited tests done on Adena remains. They've been done from late Adena mounds, sometime after 100 A.D. in Kentucky, and it's very difficult to obtain the complete results. One of the interesting things that we have learned is that the Adena did possess haplogroup X, which is one of the controversial haplogroups, and there are numerous people with various theories about what that means. Um, but I usually like to give people a word of caution with DNA studies because, honestly, DNA studies are very easy to manipulate. And what I mean by that is here in America we have had numerous First Nations people who have had their own DNA tested, and when Indo-European haplogroup types appear in their DNA, the geneticists always say, well, you've had your family had admixture with Europeans after colonization, and they'll throw out the results. Mm -hmm. So to make my point more clearly, as long as we are dependent upon an establishment with something to lose, we should not expect anything extraordinary to be reported to us. But, but so so coming back, though, to the thing that are initially sparked my interest because I was reading about current-day extinctions of 27,000 species a year being lost. Now, that's an extraordinary number of species going extinct every day of the week, most of which none of us would ever be able to name nor know about, either before it went extinct or after it went extinct. But then when I started thinking about these giant humanoids having gone extinct and they're not in anthropology and they're not in geology and we can't find them in biology and you wouldn't even know they exist until recently when these things have sort of become more popular and the internet has certainly made it more available to more people in some of the satellite TV shows, so to speak. But um, what do you think happened or, or what do people say? So where did these giants go and did they exist the same time as we smaller human bipedals? That would seem apparent to be so, so that there were concomitant races of beings all sharing the earth together at the same time. And then we add to it all the cultures that point to the little people who also existed and exist. Well, we they are absolutely uh, contemporaneous with uh, what we would consider modern anatomical humans, because one of the biggest aspects of our research is to study the accounts worldwide and to combine that with a working knowledge of archaeology. In most of our research, 95% of our sources are actual archaeological texts and papers. Mm -hmm. And one thing that, that you can rest assured of is that going back to about 3000 BC, these individuals were not only living amongst other types of humans like ourselves, 
but they were the ruling lineages in many parts of the world. And to that I would include Western and Central Europe as well as North America. And, of course, that's the part that interests me. So if there was this supposed, we, we don't have to say that they were more advanced, because we don't know that, but maybe they were. Um, we certainly know they were larger, just like there used to be much larger mammals before the Ice Age and then the ending of the Ice Age when we had so much extinction and things got smaller. You know, just the regular buffalo went from being enormous to what we know today of a 1,000 or 2,000 pounds. And so there was this scaling down that I think happened with the change in climate. What does the evidence suggest? Well, the historical evidence tells us a lot about what happened to these people, actually. Um, in, in Europe, what happened was the Roman Empire. The Roman generals, as they waged war, wars of conquest against the Celtic people in Western Europe, the Roman generals documented that among these different Celtoi tribes, there were people between seven and nine feet tall that they had to wage warfare with, and they annihilated them. Others they took prisoner, and the prisoners were bred to produce lineages of bodyguards for the subsequent Roman emperors, and eventually they bred with the lineages of Roman emperors, which is why people like Charlemagne were eight to eight and a half feet tall. In North America... There are oral histories handed down by several First Nations people, first and foremost the Delaware, which record generations of warfare with the Tall Ones, probably here in the Ohio Valley. And the Delaware wrote about how when their ancestors migrated from the West, that they encountered a great nation of mound builders who had giants among them, and a great war broke out as the ancestors of the Delaware passed into the territory of this great nation, and in a war that probably lasted for generations, the Delaware gradually overcame the Tall Ones and burned their cities. So we do have records of conflict, historical conflict, between various groups and these types of people. And when you look at this versus ancient cultures, and, and it, it might seem like this radical jump, but I also notice that it's an area you study, which is the Uruk culture of Mesopotamia, sort of being the first great city-state. And it's often thought that there were great giant beings among the elders. Um, so you know, when you run through the thread, again, this isn't an area I've studied, so I don't know that much about it other than what I have read and then reading your work and listening to my husband and the people he's interviewed over the years, is when we look, though, at this particular large anthropod, I guess, or humanoid, um, that were worldwide and then smaller bipedals waged war worldwide. Where did they come from, though? I mean, to say that, you know, some some of the reports say, well, they existed at around 3000 BCE, and some know they existed around 14,000 BCE. And so 
there's likely, if you go to the Vedas, there have been, you know, beings on this planet for billions of years, not a couple thousand or hundred thousand years. So where where does it lead your thinking in terms of the other questions you're asking about? So what were their origins? And were they genetically engineered to be this way, or did it just happen this way? Or I mean, there are a lot of questions. Yes, there, and there always will be a lot of questions. Um, basically... Our history, as we have it recorded by historians, goes back to Sumer. And for that reason, that's as far back culturally as I can trace these instances. However... Of large beings. Right. But from an anthropological perspective, if we're just going to talk about anthropology, you can trace them back at least to the Upper Paleolithic at around 27,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. The... Um, the Cro-Magnon people, there was a cult that spread from the ancient Middle East into Central and Western Europe of the Cro-Magnon people that's known archaeologically as the Gravetian culture, and already at that point, exceptionally large and tall and powerfully built people were being given honored burial. So from an anthropological standpoint, we can trace them back around 27 to 28,000 years at least, and that's just because that culture has been dated, which is to say nothing about instances which have never been dated or assigned a cultural affiliation. In terms of the Uruk period, it's very interesting to me that the Babylonian king's list gives us the names of several individuals that biblically and from a mythological standpoint have been uh, sort of portrayed as giants or half-gods, and that includes the biblical king Nimrod, who is called Enmerkar on the king's list, and Gilgamesh of the Epic of Gilgamesh, who was apparently a true king in ancient Samaria. So... When we look at anthropology and mythology and archaeology together as a whole, it is possible to see this into our history and even beyond. And, of course, that's the part that interests me. Again, I I pointed out, you know, when I was starting to just read up about our sixth extinction that we're in right now, and then trying to understand how distorted our record is of our life on Earth, and having studied that most my life, like yourself, when you get interested in just finding out what's true, you discover it doesn't matter which direction you turn, there's untruths in every direction. And so when you're trying to kind of piece together human evolution and changes, earth changes, and how earth changes actually assists evolution, even though people feel like extinction is the end, it seems to me to be a phase of transformation. So I'm very interested in when things go from being giant to smaller, because that actually seems to be a uh, progression of refined evolution, not dissolution. It's it's not something that is lesser than. It actually seems to be, um, what's the right word, an increase in the light and a lessening of the mass. Well, it's it's very important to remember that These types of individuals with this distinct anthropology uh, were, in fact, with us through the 
late Neolithic copper and bronze age at a time when most of the average people were just of the regular shorter stature Mm -hmm. that's more common for human beings. So whatever it is which caused this distinct anthropology and these lineages to exist, it was contemporaneous with us through at least that entire part of our history that's been recorded. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting because that scale of human would have been proportionate to the woolly mammoths and and the other gigantic animals. I mean, relative to one another, they were proportionate. I mean, that's the way I look at it. And and I'm totally lost when it comes to history and history figures. But the general concept seems to me that things were proportioned to one another. Well, the interesting thing is, wherever we find these individuals, whether it's in Mesopotamia, in Europe, or the United States, we find the same cult Mm -hmm. as well. We find burial mounds, subsurface tombs. We find the use of red ochre. We find weapons as status symbols, daggers, flint bifaces. And we find the same economy, which, for me and from my perspective, The fact that we know that these individuals ruled over others using the same type of economic practices is very important. Well, look, when we come back, we'll talk about it, because I thought that you wrote a fascinating piece on your website about the end of Uruk and its expansion coming to an abrupt end, um, and that there's something to be learned there for ourselves. We'll be right back. Our guest is Jason Gerald. Hi, this is Marie D. Jones. And this is Larry Flaxman. We're the authors of Mind Wars, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zoe Hieronymus. And you can learn more about our work at www.paraexplorers.com. And, of course, all our guests and links to their websites are at www.21stcenturyradio.com. So, Jason, you you mentioned that, you know, you started studying these kinds of things because growing up your mother had an Egyptian um, encyclopedia from which you learned to read English. And, of course, this goes back. Um, what we're talking about when you talk about Uruk is... Um, a culture of ancient Mesopotamia. And I thought you had a very interesting insight in looking at that culture and how, if we look at these giants and that there was this royalty that ruled over the other people, why you see a connection somehow or other in this coming to light now and why it might help us not repeat history. Well, that we, if we're talking about ancient Eric, um the world that we live in today <clears throat> is the legacy of ancient Uruk. Ancient Uruk was really the first empire on Earth. And it arose sometime after about 3800 B.C. And essentially, by 3400 B.C., the Uruk Empire, occupying Iraq and Iran, had expanded into the southern Caucasus Mountains pre-dynastic Egypt, Turkey, and Syria. And this phase of the Uruk civilization is known as the Uruk expansion, and it's been compared to international banking and British colonialism. The socioeconomic organization inherent in Uruk society was based around debt. And in fact, this is probably 
probably what led to the invention of Sumerian cuneiform. Because writing in ancient Uruk first appeared to keep track of the distribution of wealth, resources, and goods in every level of society. The entire society was being regulated by the temple. Within the temple, there were a group of leaders who managed human labor and ingenuity to the sole benefit of the ruling elite. Farmers, craftsmen, potters, and metal workers, even plumbers, were subject to a cadre of thousands of temple bureaucrats who assured the specialization and control of humanity's toil. So, eventually, this society created what we know as modern urbanism by packing people into densely populated settlements that became the first cities. And the reason for this was that in a city, people will give up their autonomy because someone has to control the distribution of food, water, etc. And eventually, because of the ecological practices and because of the huge gap between the haves and the have-nots in Uruk society, it collapsed in around 3100 B.C. And this collapse was a spectacular thing because the habitation sites in the colonies were completely abandoned. Thousands of people vanished from the archaeological record, and many of the outposts were burned. But what happens in relation to the history of the giants at this time period is very important because the Eric elite had an outpost in the Caucasus Mountains, and the role of this outpost was to forward prestigious goods and metals back into the Uruk homeland to be enjoyed by the elite class. And it was here that the first conical mound burials occurred in the Caucasus. But when the Uruk collapse happened, after 3000 BC, these colonists from ancient Mesopotamia migrated in mass into Europe, reaching the Atlantic coast by 2000 BC. And throughout Europe, they established new cultures of their own and they created a pan-regional system of interconnected chiefs and polities, and it is precisely in the tombs of these people and their descendants that the large skeletal remains throughout Europe are found. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And interestingly enough, one of the cultures which has been proven through DNA testing in the last few years to have originated from this expansion from out of the Caucasus into Europe is the corded ware culture. The corded ware culture was the very same culture that the Nazis believed represented their ancient race of superhuman, the Aryans. So we have all these connections, which really had, I think, a profound impact on the 20th century if the full facts were known about what people in power know and what we, the masses, do not know. Well, and I like it because you talk about, I'm a registered libertarian, so all the things you talked about are things that I also believe, you know, that our 
our inner potential and the work of our hands and our energy. We shouldn't let anything in life dominate and tell you what you can or can't create. And I loved what you had to say about authority, that no human being or group of humans has any privilege or right, divine or otherwise, to rule over or subjugate other exactly. humans. I mean, the the things you said about it are, are so appropriate to what we're experiencing in, under globalization worldwide, which we talked about earlier um, this evening with Helena Norberg Lodge from localfutures.org. And what they have found, of course, is that the happiest communities, the most resilient, the most sustainable are local economies. And so I was interested, strangely enough, in the two topics together, because if the giants who no longer exist, and there was an effort by some of our culture to suppress that this is part of our history, so we are not even aware that we live side by side with giants who may have ruled over us and that they're connected to this first great city and its demise was its system of debt, passing debt on through generations, which is what our own nation is doing. Um, I just thought it was fascinating because there's so much hidden from everybody through the knowledge filters, um, society, if you will, guilds um, that dominate every profession. There's not a single profession I've covered that this isn't so. Well, you'll find this very interesting, then. Um, many of the elites that run the international banking houses and who inhabit the royal seats in Europe descend from um, the black nobility. Now, the, the black nobility has genetic roots in the ancient Merovingian lineages. What most people don't know today about the Merovingian bloodline, in spite of all the books written on the subject over the years, is that the Merovingians were still burying their dead and practicing artificial cranial deformation until about 700 A.D. Hmm. We may be dealing with a global elite who are themselves descended from ancient chiefs that may have been associated with some of these cultures back in the distant past. Do, 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 do. Now we're getting into conspiracy on the grand scheme. <laughs> you know, this even goes outside my ballpark. You know, it's so funny, Jason, because I used to cover conspiracies. And what I discovered after covering them for decades and investigating them myself, because I want to know what's true versus what's, you know, popular mythology. I've discovered that most secrets can't be held by more than two people at a single time. <laughs> and that what happens is there's a homogeneity in education and a uniformity in emotion and a diminishment of independent, autonomous thinking. And that that's what creates these things that appear oftentimes like conspiracy. And that doesn't mean that there aren't some things dealing with some off-planet forces that aren't conspiracies, because I do actually think that's true. But I think a lot of things that we pass off as somebody planned this has actually been this unfoldment of homogeneity and people not thinking independently. I love that word, um, homogeneity. I think think you're right. I think really the thing that's got us in the situation we're in today, rather than anyone engineering it, is we look back in academia, and this is true of every major university, they look back at civilizations like Uruk Mm -hmm. as a model. Yeah. I think that what we really need to do is to educate ourselves on different models of living, because most major universities teach that Uruk is the first great civilization, but in my opinion, 
to completely regulate human energy is anything but civilized. You're exactly right. You know, we're going to have to continue our conversation because it's a broader one than giants, extinctions, and the end of Uruk <laughs> in 3100 BCE. So I want to thank you. Is there any big question you started with? We only have about 30 seconds. Any big question you started with you were actually able to answer to your own satisfaction? Well, the question that we started with was whether there was an archaeological basis underlying this sort of American mythology that's grown up around the existence of these beings, and the answer is yes. Well, that's short and sweet. I want to thank you for the beautiful work you do. Tell Sarah we said hello. It's wonderful when a husband and a wife share common interests. www.21stcenturyradio.com 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus, and we hope you enjoyed the show.